Welcome to the Cairo Radio Rundown, the show where we collect takes from all the hosts on the biggest stories of the week and force them to compete for take supremacy. I used to say it was forcing the hosts to compete involuntarily and make a lot of jokes about how the host didn't know this was going on, but I don't think that's true anymore. More people in the office are finding out I'm doing this, which is stressful to me because I don't know what to do with my face, hands, or body when I receive feedback. I'm Jake Rummel, by day the producer of the Tom and Curly Show, and by night the zookeeper who keeps all the animals in line for your listening appreciation. This is all metaphorically speaking. Is it unethical? That's certainly an open question. We're going to go a few different places today, but I will say all the clips we'll be playing have to do with crime, poverty, addiction, and how those things intersect. All these conversations started, though, with some news coma broke regarding the Seattle City Council considering reclassifying certain kinds of crimes as misdemeanors. We'll play a bit of their package just so we're all on the same page. Scott Lindsay, the former public safety advisor to the city of Seattle, says he's never seen anything like it. I am not aware of any legislation like this anywhere in the United States, even globally. All cities have criminal codes to protect their citizens from criminal acts. This would basically create a legal loophole that swallowed all those codes and said green light to crime. The legislation was proposed by Seattle City Council Member Lisa Herbold last Wednesday. This proposal uh, is sponsored by Council Member Herbold. Um, it is to consider passage of legislation uh, that would allow the dismissal of crimes of poverty. Uh, and it would do so by revising the definition of uh, duress um, as a defense against prosecution. It would excuse and dismiss, in essence, effectively legalize almost all misdemeanor crimes committed in Seattle by people who show either symptoms of addiction with no medical diagnosis necessary, symptoms of a mental disorder, or poverty, that they committed the offense to meet an immediate basic need. In other words, if someone stole merchandise to sell for cash to get food, clothes, rent money, whatever, they could not be convicted. That's Como's Eric Johnson. You might remember him from Seattle's dying fame. Dory Monson, as you might expect, had a field day with this all week. I guess that would be a, I guess that would be a field week. Back a few weeks ago, and for months leading up to that, I was talking about this effort to legalize crime. In Seattle. And a lot of people accuse me of hyperbole that there's no way they want more crime in this region. But they do. And and now we have absolutely remarkable legislation that has been proposed that proves what I've been telling you about the effort to get more crime in this entire region. What it will do is it will literally allow people who are drug addicts, homeless, poor, you can walk into stores, you can shoplift with impunity, you can just take other people's stuff. You can walk into homes and steal with impunity, break into cars, just tell them that you're poor and Who cares if you're going to sell what you steal for 10 cents on the dollar? But this is the future that the radical Seattle City Council envisions for our city and our region. This would absolutely open the floodgates to crime in Seattle, even worse than we often currently struggle with. Reporter Hannah Scott and Cairo Knight's host Mike Lewis did a much deeper dive into this proposal. What it actually says, what stage it's actually in in the legislative process. It gets a bit technical, but I thought this was helpful in understanding this thing. I reached out to Lisa Herbold and I got a very lengthy statement in essentially what she's saying. And that's right. You know, the budget process is a 
very, very long process. As I know, you know, Mike, this was, I believe, issue identification or, or uh, yeah, last week. And so she was saying that's why it was, you know, a few minutes uh, of conversation and that the actual legislation has not yet been introduced. Uh, but that will happen. Uh, they're going to have a hearing on this on next Monday morning at 930 as part of the overall budget conversation. But they're still concerned about why is this a budget bill? Why wouldn't it just be a regular proposal? And the idea is, is that this could be something that dramatically shrinks the population that Seattle sends to the jail and therefore uh, help them to renegotiate or, or, you know, fix their contract as far as the jail goes so they don't have to pay as much. That's why it's got budget implications. Another clarification they discussed was even if this thing gets passed as part of the budget, totally in the form we're talking about it existing right now, would judges actually even bother to use this option? This doesn't require that any judge do this. Okay, right. it, gives it just them allows the, them to. It allows them to, which is a big deal. And I've been doing a lot of stories lately with the Seattle Municipal Court. They are of the mind of, of, of this. They're kind of on the same page as the council. They want to make sure that they are fixing this disproportionality issue. Lisa Herbold, though, said, as she presented this last week also, that this was based on some recommendations that came out of the Seattle Reentry Work Group final report, which was back in, like, 2015. I don't know if you remember. But essentially, they again, we're talking about uh, the need to decriminalize poverty, the need to decriminalize uh, things that were disproportionately affecting people of color, which tends to be, you know, drug crimes and, and things like that. So I think she's just skipping the step you're talking about and going straight to the end and saying, OK, if you happen to get caught up in this net, then here, we're going to give the judge the opportunity to look at your case and say, we don't need to charge this. He can go. And so rather than this being a guiding principle for judges, this is meant to mainly be give them here is one other you know, uh, essentially one other tool in your toolkit. That's what she's trying to say. Yeah, she's saying if they find that the defendant's conduct meets specific circumstances, which are, you know, the ones I've described, poverty, drug addiction, and mental health issues, a nexus between crime committed and those circumstances of the individual, uh, they can go ahead and, and make that choice and dismiss that. Here's where we'll make a bit of a departure, although I would argue still tangentially related. G and Ursula talked about what seems like a radical solution to substance abuse, but that some studies indicate could really help. Should we pay people to stay sober. When it comes to treating addiction, I'm sure you can imagine that America is struggling and the pandemic is making it worse. And it turns out that paying people to stay sober is a pretty effective way to get people off drugs like cocaine and meth, but almost no treatment programs are doing so. So this is an approach called contingency management, and the idea is to reward drug users with money and prizes for staying off drugs. Love it. Why? Absolutely love it because everybody likes rewards. Everybody likes to be acknowledged for doing something right, right? And look, I've never had an addiction, but I've had family members that have, and someone listening, maybe you've had an addiction, and maybe you have a family or loved one that's had an addiction, and you know how serious that it is, and you know what it is that sometimes you're, either your loved one or you or yourself have gone through. It is an everyday deal, and every piece of uh, help matters, right, in this case. I remember um, years ago um, when, I was in, when I was in school, and there was this some of the kids that could not read and they had to go to this uh to Miss Jackson's class and they were having so much fun so i told my mom i'm like hey um 
I want to be a part of that class. Well, they told me that I couldn't. Well, my mom went and really complained, and she really made it to where I get to go over there. My point is, Ursula, is the kids in that class, were we were getting rewards and cupcakes for all this stuff. And it turns out all those kids wanted to read and just do more and be better. I'm not saying that this is the end all be all, but I thought that, wow, what a fantastic idea to help someone out. So why doesn't anybody enact this kind of program? With addiction to meth and cocaine, right now there are a whole host of different interventions that that have been tried, behavioral interventions, but there's very little evidence that any of them have really worked. But there is some evidence that this contingency management idea has worked, which is why an associate professor at Washington State University has suggested, well, why aren't we trying to do this more often? Well, one of the things is that it's it's a hard sell for any government to to budget that kind of money to use. Uh, to to use for this kind of a program. This week, we also saw headlines again about safe injection sites. Remember those sites where it would be legal to use drugs under the supervision of a healthcare professional who could prevent you from overdosing. We used to talk about this all the time. It seems like it kind of went away, and it's still in the ether there. Anyway, John responded to this news by suggesting the city take things even farther. Why don't they just legalize it all? I mean, that way you have to worry about safe. If you legalize it, then the government is producing it. It's not fentanyl in it. The thing, the reason people are ODing is because they're getting something that's got too much fentanyl. So they got bad mix of stuff. They inject it and they die. You could get rid of the safe injection sites if you just simply legalized it. Then the government controlled it, or at least you could have the private mark, private uh, uh, markets uh, sell it, and then allow people to get it on a regular basis as as much as they possibly want. The fact that the government allows us to buy cigarettes, which kill you uh, very slowly, but allow us to uh, collect a tremendous amount of taxes, why not legalize these drugs? The reason people die is not because of the drugs, it's because of the mix of the bad drugs that are in it. Get rid of the safe injection sites and don't try to fool yourself for one minute to think that anybody that goes to those places also tries to seek additional help. Don't let anybody give you that nonsense. Oh, they're coming in there and then we counsel them and give them hope and give them some sort of help to get them off the drugs. Nobody, or at least only about 1% of those people from 2003 to 2020 uh, took any sort of additional help, and that's from the uh, sites uh, in Vancouver, B.C. I saw this number. 3.6 million users, uh, and um, 1% of them actually got some sort of help and were considered to be successful and off the drugs. I say legalize it, Tom. Well, that's, you know, that's we might be able to come to some kind of agreement. Oh, good, I, okay. Uh-oh. Be, uh, on that, on the idea that we should provide for it. Right now, the uh, I, I'm assuming, that my understanding of these safe injection sites, you still had to gain get the drugs illegally yeah. and then go right. in and yeah. shoot up. Right. So yeah, that's they don't provide the, the drugs, just the yes. tools to do the drugs sterilize. Yes. But see, I, I'm... If if John can can uh, meet me halfway there and actually say let's legalize all drugs, I'd say well for people that are hopelessly addicted, if we provided them and 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 it was a safe situation, that might be the uh, the kind of compromise. This would be like I, going to a to a gas station, Tom, that serves sushi, and you have somebody standing off to the side holding a vomit can for you. So it's like oh, you're going <laughs> into the gas station to eat sushi, knowing that the sushi at the gas station. And again, this is nothing against those gas stations that sell good sushi, but. <laughs> But you're going in there, you're eating the sushi, and then some guy's going, you're not, you don't look so well. You're okay. Blah, blah, I can't believe I'm sick. We were eating sushi from the gas station. So we could eliminate the entire uh, transaction and just simply say to the, gov- say the government says, 
Here we go. You could have, you say, who was it? Here's this? good no. sushi. Here's good sushi. <laughs> and it's going to be provided for you by the private sector. You don't have to worry about it. And then you can regulate it and you can tax it. Okay, today's another special occasion because we get to boot up the Cairo Radio Time Machine again. A very special device that allows us to suck radio segments out of the past that may have some relevance today. I'm going to type in November 1st, 2018. It spit out a tape. It looks like a Dave Ross interview about the underground safe injection sites that already exist. But while we're awaiting the official injection sites, I talked to somebody who says there are already dozens of unofficial injection sites operating underground right now. And if the county doesn't look to drug users themselves to create the policies for those locations, the whole government-run project could be a big failure. His name is Shiloh Jama, and he's the director of the University District Needle Exchange. Well, I don't see them as dangerous, and I because there's been simply no one who's died in them. I understand people's morality, but our job is people who work in the health prevention field and do harm reduction. Our job is to mitigate as many deaths and as harms as possible because people will use drugs, you know, maybe for a year or two, maybe uh, a weekend or multiple years, but we still don't want them to have HIV. Um, we don't want them to have hepatitis C and we don't want them to die of overdoses. Well, if drug use was just a weekend thing, I, I don't think there'd be a problem. I think what we're worried about, and I include myself, is that you would be enabling a uh, a lifelong addiction and, uh, as a consequence, a really short life. Well, you're enabling people to be safe. You're enabling people to not die. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you're right. We are enabling people to um, be able to save their lives. Because right now... Well, how we, are you saving your life by... By using, a, uh, by using a um, safe consumption room, you, you're around doctors, you're around support staff, you are absolutely going to probably, or you're absolutely not going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, but but isn't, isn't the use of the drug itself intrinsically unsafe? Well, in that sense, your tobacco and alcohol are in the same boat, and we've legalized both of them. So that's the rundown for October 29th, 2020. Once again, I'm Jake Rummel. I also produce, edit, and mix this show. Just a heads up, we won't have an episode of the rundown this upcoming Tuesday like we usually would. It's election night, so I'll be pretty busy with that, along with everyone else around here. But please tune in to our election night coverage on the radio at 97.3 FM or online at MindRequest.com. You don't always have time to listen to every Cairo radio show, but you'll always have time for the Cairo radio rundown. See you next Thursday.